At the moment, 193 countries in the world hold membership in the United Nations. And of that group, how many countries would you guess are currently Muslim-majority countries? Just a rough guess. Well, the answer is 50, a data point referenced by each of today's guest scholars in their own thinking about how Islam and liberalism intersect. First up, Mustafa Akiol is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, where he focuses on the intersection of public policy, Islam, and modernity. Since 2013, he's been writing regular opinion pieces at the New York Times, and he's published four popular books. Just listen to the common thread. Reopening Muslim Minds, a return to reason, freedom, and tolerance. Why, as a Muslim, I defend liberty. The Islamic Jesus, how the King of the Jews became a prophet of the Muslims. And Islam without extremes, a Muslim case for liberty. Mustafa opens with a wonderful story about captivity, freedom, and recent surprise in Malaysia, but I won't spoil it. Second up is a researcher and pollster, Dahlia Mogahed, who is director of research at the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding, which she helps run both from Dearborn, Michigan, and from Washington, D.C. Dahlia studies Muslim communities inside the United States, and her firsthand story from 9-11, a date that woke many of us from a kind of stupor, is gold. Born in Cairo, Dahlia immigrated to America at age four. And in addition to her work at the Institute, she served on President Obama's Advisory Council for Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships, and prior to that was for six years director of Gallup's Center for Muslim Studies. She's also written a book with John Esposito, Who Speaks for Islam, based on over six years of research with more than 50,000 interviews representing Muslims in over 35 of the world's Muslim-majority countries. This episode also recalls that a religious reckoning with the modern world isn't unique to Islam. Certainly it happened in fresh ways during Vatican II, when a half century ago, Catholicism opened anew to religious freedom questions and on the compatibility of truth convictions outside the Catholic faith. But today, two experts reflect on the uncertain future of Islam in the modern era and on Muslim life in America. Enjoy the conversation. beginning of my book, Reopening Muslim Minds, I tell a personal story, so I want to begin with that, which helped me elucidate some theoretical issues that we can discuss today. In 2017, I was a newcomer to the U.S., and I got an invitation to go and speak at Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. It's exactly the other end of the planet. I said, okay, I'll do it. You know, it's just, it takes a day to go there. This was my fifth trip to Malaysia because I've been there before there's a particular organization there called Islamic Renaissance Front. They want to spread ideas of human rights and freedom with an Islamic argumentation for it. They're pious Muslims, you know, who believe in liberty. And they had invited me there before. You know, this time they said, Mustafa, your book was translated. So they had translated my book recently. It's a book launch. There'll be a lot of events, a lot of people waiting for you to come here and we, you'll have great fun. I said, okay. So I went there. The first event was great, but the second event was on a sensitive topic. It's the topic of apostasy. Probably you're familiar with it, you know, publicly renouncing your religion and accepting another religion. And in a free society, you know, I mean, we don't want fellow believers to lose their faith. You know, we may feel for their salvation, but we don't consider this as a crime. 
but in about a dozen Muslim-majority countries today, and there are 50 Muslim-majority countries, so don't think that all of them have the same things. They're very diverse, very different. But about in a dozen of them, Saudi Arabia, Iran for sure, Yemen, Mauritania, Afghanistan, especially now, apostasy is a crime punishable by death. It's rarely implemented, but it's in the law, and there's been cases of people executed for apostasy or jailed for a long time. And sometimes fellow Muslims have been blamed for apostasy, although they're true believers, and that's actually used more to kind of put a pressure on their views. Now, Malaysians are proudly moderate, so they don't do execution for apostasy. It's not that harsh. But in some parts of Malaysia, they send you to a rehabilitation center to fix you in the next six, mo six months to come back to Islam to re-educate you. Now, I know this is a sensitive topic, so I gave this 30-minute lecture, and I said, look, I'm not an imam, I don't claim any religious authority, but I've been following all these discussions in Islam. There are sheikhs and imams who actually says, as we can reinterpret this issue, this ban on apostasy has no basis in the Quran period, just like apostasy laws. It comes from some post-Quranic texts and their medieval interpretations. But at the time, apostasy was something Christians criminalized as well. At the time, it implied treason to the state as well, because when you begin apostate, you'll probably join the enemy army and we are in constant war. It was the context to it, which we don't have anymore. And third, I said, well, if people don't believe in Islam, by the way, you cannot make them believers again by forcing them, by threatening them. Faith is not something you can dictate. Faith is not something you can police. So that was a punchline. People loved it. You know, I mean, the audience loved it. And it was a place like this. People were leaving. And then some five serious men walked into the room and they walked to me and they said, are you Mustafa Akil? I said, yes. They said, did you say religion cannot be policed? I said, yes. They said, good, we are the religion police. <laughs> so they said, you know, we heard complaints about your talk, so we have to ask you questions. They took me to a side, they took photos. They took a photo of me, like behind the wall. I said, something's going on. They said, we will watch your video and let you know about the next steps. And I didn't think the next steps would be a big deal. I went to my hotel that night, I slept, but I woke up Kuala Lumpur and I heard that I was summoned to the religious police headquarters to give my testimony to a judge, to a prosecutor. And my host, Islamic Renaissance France guys, they said, Mustafa, just don't go there, you know, buy souvenirs for your wife, which I was always planning to do. And we'll de deal with lawyers, go there and it won't be a problem. I said, okay. So I went to Kuala Lumpur International Airport at 8 p.m. I got my boarding pass, I came to the passport check and the female officer who typed my name, she saw my name and she panicked and then she called some people and they called some. I was detained at the airport because apparently the religious police had issued a nationwide arrest order to get me in. I was put in the religious police headquarters that night in a cell. The next morning I was taken to a court. I was questioned for two hours. And a few times they asked me if I really quoted the Quranic verse, Baqarah 256, which probably every Muslim knows, which begins by saying, La ikraha fiddin, or there is no compulsion in religion. There's a verse like that in the Quran. There is no compulsion in religion because truth has become manifest from error, it goes on to say. But the beginning of that, that has become the motto of liberal-minded Muslims in the past century. There's no compulsion in religion, so we have religious freedom in Islam. So they said, did you quote the verse? I said, yeah. I mean, like, why wouldn't I not quote the verse? So they wrote that he quoted like Rafi Din. And at the end, they said, okay, we will release you. I said, thank you. You know, that's the best thing I heard since last night. But they said, don't come back to Malaysia and teach Islam again. 
I said, you can be sure about that. <laughs> so, and then I got on the plane that I missed the other night, so I went out of Malaysia without any, any trouble. But I was thinking, like, why were they obsessed with me quoting La Ikrafidin? No, there's no compulsion in religion. Then I said, let me check, check how they translate it. Because I had seen some translations published in Saudi Arabia, which don't put it like that, which add a few words in parentheses into the text to explain it. And I checked the website of Jakim, that's the religious ministry of Malaysia, and I saw that, ah, yeah, they're doing what the Saudis are doing. So there is no compulsion in religion, that's the phrase. Instead writes, there is no compulsion in entering the religion. They just didn't put the parentheses, they put entering the religion. So, but what is the difference between there is no compulsion in religion versus there is no compulsion in only entering the religion? Well, the implication is you can enter, but you cannot exit. Like Hotel California, as Malaysian liberals are saying. <laughs> this is not in the Quranic text. It's in the medieval jurisprudence. They take it as normative. So the Quran says this, it doesn't sound exactly, it sounds too liberal, so we have to do something about it. So they put that into the explanation. Then I wrote an article about this and so on and so forth, I explained. And of course, we know that actually, I mean, they rely on tradition, they're not coming out of nowhere. In classical Islam, the phrase, there is no compulsion in religion, and some other texts in the Quran, some other verses, were luckily accepted by Muslims for some important level of religious freedom. I mean, in classical Islam, Jews and Christians were not forcibly converted into Islam, which was a very liberal thing at the time. So actually that verse was functional, very, very important in Islamic history. But they also believed that we will not forcibly convert you, but once you're in it, you can't exit because apostasy is banned based on a narration that is reported from Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. It comes from just one narrator, not a multiple narrator, so its authenticity can be actually discussed. I mean, there are endless discussions about this topic, but they believe apostasy is banned, so we have to do this. Not just that apostasy is banned, also, they believe that once you're in the religion, your religiosity can be policed. Right? I mean, that's the main function of the religious police. Like, in Malaysia is very mild on this, but if a Muslim drinks publicly, Chinese can, so there are a lot of bars in Kuala Lumpur. But if a Muslim is not supposed to, and if he does, the police will come and admonish him and, you know, and so on and so forth. In Saudi Arabia, it could be worse. In Iran, it could be certainly worse. Iran has religious police, as we all know, so it tells Muslim women to wear the hijab, the headscarf. Just like in France, they tell women to take it off. You know, Iran tells them to put it on. None of them accept that women have the right to, you know, choose their way of life and their way of practice. So the, the idea of religious policing is also a key issue here, monitoring that the Muslims are properly behaving and they are in the religion. Now, I begin my book with the story, and I say this story is just a example of a bigger thing we're discussing in Islam today. And that is the problem of religious illiberalism, as I call it, religious coercion. And this problem is there in the world of Islam today. Not everywhere. Bosnia, where my wife is from, is one of the most liberal Muslim societies, have freedom levels as, as like European countries, like Spain, as I documented in a catering to this report. But if you go to the end of the spectrum, in a dozen countries, you have apostasy laws. In two dozen countries, you have blasphemy laws. So blaspheming against the Prophet, the Quran, or Islamic values are an offense. 
Not that I want to see that offense as a Muslim, I don't. But should we criminalize that is a different question. And blasphemy laws we know leads to a lot of human rights violations, especially in Pakistan, where almost every month, every month somebody gets jailed or lynched on the streets by militant groups for often on false charges of blasphemy. There are laws that give women less rights than men and give non-Muslims less rights than Muslims. So this problem is there, it is not even too marginal. And this is different from, I should say, the problem of terrorism, which attracted, attracted a lot of attention since 9-11, as, as we all know. Terrorism is incredibly marginal in the world of Islam. People who would sympathize with ISIS al-Qaeda, there's a very, very, very small minority, and actually they hate other Muslims more than anybody else. So that is really a problem of extremism. But when it comes to religious liberalism, it has a bigger ground. And that's where I think it needs an honest discussion. Now, people actually discuss this issue. And some people say, oh, yeah, there's a solution. What is the solution? All Muslim societies need an Ataturk or an Iranian Shah. You know, These are kind of early 20th century autocratic rulers which came and crushed Islamic institutions, banned the headscarf or the Fez, you know, in the Turkish case, tried to secularize the society by force. They did what the French love to do, forcibly unveil Muslim, you know, the French seculars, not all French, they're true liberals in France too, but the French seculars can be hard. I'm not speaking about that. That was the wrong solution to what we're speaking about. That was wrong in itself because it was authoritarian in itself and lead to a lot of human rights violations. Second, it only is counterproductive and creates a backlash. If you have not been following Iran and Turkey in the past 10, 40 years, you see a comeback of the religious conservatives in Iran in a much harsher and militant way. Turkey more mild, democratic, but still in a kind of revengeful way, which has some grim consequences. This is also not about narcissistic crown prince coming in, giving some social freedoms while butchering his critical journals who criticize him. So no, that's not where, that is again authoritarian in itself and it will have wrong consequences. The solution is something like, and because before speaking on a solution, we should think that is Islam the only religion who has this problem? Did Catholics ever do something against blasphemers or apostates, like heretics? Did people get burned in the stakes? Yeah, I mean, there's a whole history of Christian religious coercion and illiberalism that defined much of Christian history, actually. Actually, for a long time, Islam was a more liberal religion than compared to Christianity at the time. Jews know this better than everybody else because when they were persecuted in Europe, especially in Spain, for example, they were given the choose options to convert to Christianity or to die or to migrate, and they migrated to the lands of Islam repeatedly. Until the 18th century, actually, Islam was more pluralistic because we gave Muslim, Jews and Christians the right to practice their religion in, Christi in, in Christian Europe. There was more persecution, there was more interfaith violence, I mean, sectarian violence and so on and so forth. Now, Christianity changed and it changed thanks to the historical process we call the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment had a anti-religious and actually militant strain that I don't like, and I don't think it's, that's not a solution. Actually, unfortunately, Muslims have always looked up to that as an example. But the Enlightenment had figures like John Locke or Moses Mendelssohn in the Jewish tradition. Enlightenment ideas, also Roger Williams in the United States, the ideas of religious freedom. They did not oppose their religious tradition, 
they reinterpreted it with a perspective of human freedom and human toleration. So that's why I say sometimes we are at a John Locke moment in Islam. And I emphasize John Locke a lot because when I read his first book, I mean, his great book, first time, A Letter Concerning Toleration, I said, oh my God, he's speaking about our problems. He says that religion cannot be coerced and when you make people try to make people bring to the same fate, to the true fate, people will not become true believers, but hypocrites. He says, religious coercion will lead to the contempt of his divine majesty, which is happening in Iran today. When you impose religion, it doesn't bring love for the religion, but it brings contempt to it. And that's why some people are burning their hijabs in Iran and becoming actually anti-religious because they, they despise the Iranian regime. So that is the kind of transformation. And how this looks like, whoa, I mean, Apostasy laws, let's discuss this for five days, right? I mean, I mean, can, let's discuss blasphemy laws. Does Prophet Muhammad really say this? Or if he said that, was there a context to it that? Was that person in that war particularly targeted because he was a blasphemer or he had attacked Muslims in the first place? Like there are endless theoretical discussions on these issues, which I discuss in my book. But these will go on and I think you may think that the world of Islam is today so in some parts illiberal, it's never gonna change. Sometimes the most illiberal time is when you begin to change because you see the consequences of that. That was what happened with actually the Lockean revolution. John Locke came after religious conflict and sectarianism within Christianity. So this is the world of Islam and we can expand that. Well, but what is America? Our panel is about American Muslims. American Muslims or Muslims in the West are having an experience that is actually kind of new in the Islamic civilization. An experience of living not under Islamic rule, but living under the rule of non-Muslims, which was not the case for many long centuries for most Muslims. From the very beginning, Muslims had their states, they spread as an empire, they tolerated other people, not with equal rights, so it's not a liberal toleration, but it was for its time, it was important. And Muslims lived under the Ottoman Empire, they lived under Caliph, they lived under Sultan, they lived under the guidance of the Sharia, Islamic law, and they could practice their religion. In the modern era, Muslims began to have a new experience, which they never had before. Oh, we are living under non-Muslims this time. And it began with Bosnia when Austria-Hungarian Empire took Bosnia-Herzegovina from the Ottomans, Austria-Hungarians, yeah, in, in Berlin Congress in 1878. And Bosnians found themselves under Austro-Hungarian rule and what to do with now. And actually Austro-Hungarians were liberal enough to give them a religious space. So they established an institution called Riaset, which is a kind of a, established a civil Islam in Bosnia, which is still very vibrant and also very admirably tolerant and, and, and liberal leaning. Muslims in India are having a different experience. We can speak about that. That's kind of growingly getting grim. But Muslims in America and Europe also are now living in societies, and they came willingly most, most, in most cases, with the exception of people who have origins in slavery, obviously. But they are living here. So the question is, is this gonna be a successful experiment? Like, will you thrive in non-Muslim societies? Do you need to live under the Sharia? Or can you be happy in liberalism and be a good Muslim and thrive and be an example, and maybe even some questions, some of the things back in, in your world? So this is the experiment that is actually, in my view, happening in, in American Islam, especially in America, because in Europe, because of the 
A lot of complicated reasons in Europe, sometimes Muslim communities, at least elements among them, sometimes tend to close themselves from the broader society, that is especially true in France, in part because the broader society is not very welcoming and you know, very open-minded. But in America, Muslims have been, Dahlia will tell much more about that, have been well, very well integrated. In America, there are all kinds of Muslims, from hardcore Salafis to Shiites, to Ahmadis, which are normally persecuted in Pakistan, and they're all happily living under under the Constitution, civil liberties. It's my country, my freedom. You know, nobody. And some experiences evolving. Now, there's a historical analogy to that. Catholicism also was not a very liberal religion for a very long time. I mean, killing the apostates was maybe medieval, but until mid 20th century, religious freedom was not fully appreciated by the Catholic Church. I mean, in the 19th century, popes were speaking of that. Error has no rights, and you know, this idea of secularization and secular state is not an acceptable thing. Things changed dramatically in Catholicism in the mid-20th century, ultimately leading to Vatican II, where you know Catholic Church took a very decidedly classical liberal position on religious freedom, freedom of conscience, even discussing is there salvation outside of the church, which is a discussion for us too, is there salvation outside of the mosque, which I believe there is, but that's a different discussion. And historians, and I learned from Catholic historians, I don't know this issue very well, but Daniel Philpott has a very good book on this, comparing Catholic development of doctrine towards liberalism and discussions in Islam today. He's a professor at Notre Dame. Historians point to an interesting feedback. In the liberalization of Catholic doctrine, American Catholics played an important role. Because here, they realize this freedom thing is good. It's good for us. Thanks to this, we can have our churches and institutions and the government doesn't go after us because we are heretical Christians, I mean, from the, from the Protestant point of view. So the feedback from the American Catholic experience had a positive impact on the mainstream Catholic thought and it was a, one of the inputs that all the way went to Vatican II. I believe something like this is happening, beginning to happen in the West today. I see some American Muslims saying that, this is a great country, we have our freedom, we can have mosques, churches, we wear whatever we want, nobody says anything to us. But also they're a little bit concerned about a problem, which might threaten this experience. But they also know that there are forces in our country that don't want us, that want to attack us, that demonize us, that show us them as aliens and so on and so forth. The problem with Islamophobia. That's why it's very important not to derail the Western liberal Muslim experience by forces of Islamophobia. Because if that happens, the argument of the hardcore Islamists will be proven. And you know what that argument is? That argument is, these non-Muslims, they will never accept you. They're always looking for reasons to persecute you. Unless you convert to their religion, they will be ne never happy with you. So you think they're tolerating you in the West? They're actually, you know, getting ready to persecute you in different ways, and you know something is worse to come. So, Let's make sure that that argument doesn't win. And the Muslim experience in the West goes successfully so that Muslims in Pakistan or your relatives in Pakistan or Iran or Afghanistan can see that to be a good Muslim, you don't need to have an Islamic order that's going to punish what is un-Islamic. You just need a liberal order where you can proudly and safely practice your faith and, and manifest it. Good morning. Peace be upon you. I want to start with the fact that I'm here because of a great American president that we're about to lose. So President Carter 
as a part of the peace treaty between Egypt and Israel. Many people don't know this, but a part of that peace treaty were scholarships for Egyptian students to come to the United States to study. And one of those students was my mother, who got a scholarship to pursue her PhD in civil engineering. And my father followed her, got his own funding. He didn't get a scholarship. That is how I came to the United States and ended up in Madison, Wisconsin, when I was five years old. I grew up in Madison, or sometimes it's called the People's Republic of Madison. So if you're not familiar, it's a college town, very, very progressive, sometimes called the Berkeley of the Midwest. And as I grew up attending public school and living in a very international environment, because everyone that went to my school had either parents who were grad students or professors, I was really concerned as a young person with the the question of social justice. I cared a great deal about fairness and a just society and what did that look like and how did it happen. And I became very, very interested as a teenager in the American civil rights movement, which I thought I had no real direct connection to. I read about it, I learned about it in school, and one day, when I was 15 years old, I stumbled on a book in my library to my amazement and shock and awe about a Muslim, a Muslim civil rights leader named Malcolm X. And I had no idea as a young person that Muslims had any part to play in the civil rights movement until I read this book, this autobiography, which I read in like three days. And, and it completely changed my outlook on, on my faith, on my role in America and on my future. So the reading of Malcolm X led me to reading the Quran. And up until then, I was a good Egyptian daughter who followed the rules, but Islam was something that I was inheriting. I didn't reject it by any means, but it wasn't a deliberate decision until I was led to my holy scripture by an American civil rights leader. So upon reading the Qur'an, really wrestling with it as, as a teenager, it won. It won the wrestling match. I guess I converted to Islam at that time as a true believer, as a deliberate decision rather than someone who's just inheriting it. And it was at the age of 17, as a part of that spiritual journey, that I decided to wear hijab, which is my head covering, and, and started college as a visibly Muslim woman, also in the College of Engineering. I did mention I was Egyptian, which also means I'm an engineer. That's just how it works. So it's a little, little bit of a redundancy. So I was a college activist in addition to an engineer, and I worked on things like the Bosnia genocide, which is when I was in college. I also wrote for my college newspaper about issues of Islamophobia, although there was really no word that I knew for it at the time. And upon graduation, I started a job in corporate America and retreated from this kind of activism. I got married, I had my first son, his name is Tariq. I was just sort of living the American Egyptian dream. And one day we were going to be driving across middle America to start grad school, my husband and I at the time. We had packed our bags up in a car, and my son was three months old. 
And we were having breakfast watching the news, and to our horror, planes flew into the Twin Towers in New York. And it was, of course, September 11th, 2001. So I cannot really recount the emotions of that morning, except to say that I've never felt that way before. It was horror, anger, and confusion. We didn't know what was happening, what was going to happen, what anyone was thinking. So we postponed our drive to Pittsburgh from Cincinnati till the next day. And then when we were driving across Ohio and into Pennsylvania, we waited as long as we could to get gas because we were literally afraid. We just didn't know what people were feeling or thinking the next day after that attack. I remember the first time in my life that I was afraid for people to know I was a Muslim. And when we stopped for gas after we had no choice in the middle of nowhere, I, for my own safety, I felt I sunk down into the car so that no one could look into the window and see me. We finally got to where we were going and got to our, our apartment in Pittsburgh. And it truly felt not only like we were in a new town, but a whole new world. Like everything had changed overnight. That was a Wednesday. And so that Friday is, of course, the day that Muslims gather for congregational prayer. And there were warnings that were being issued by different organizations that it might be a target. And people were actually being encouraged not to go to the mosque that day. And this wasn't paranoia. I have personal contacts with people who their Islamic school had bomb threats and people were being beaten up in the street and, and so forth. So this wasn't, there were actual arson attacks on mosques during that week. This wasn't just paranoia. There was some concern and some of it was justified. I really had a choice to make, me and my family, my, my infant, should we go to the mosque that Friday or not? And it was a brand new city. We didn't know anybody. We just didn't know what the relationship was between the community and sort of their neighbors and so forth. And so we decided initially not to go to the mosque. We thought, you know, why not just be safe? It's just better to stay home. And then as, as I sort of thought about it, I thought these people attacked our country. They attacked our country. And I'm not going to allow them to dictate how I practice my faith in my own country. So we decided to go to the mosque that day. You know, it was a tense car ride, and I put my son in the car seat and mostly just not knowing what to expect. A protest, angry neighbors, who knows? So we, we got there, we parked the car, and the parking lot was completely full, to my surprise. I took my son out, I was carrying him, I took my shoes off, went in, and what I saw completely took me aback. It really, it was one of those moments where, you know, it took my breath away. And it was that a full half of the congregation that day weren't neighbors that came to express anger, but rather solidarity. A full half of the congregation were people of other faiths and no faiths who had come to 
and really courageously and compassionately to say, you are safe here and you are accepted. And it completely changed my feeling and my outlook about this new city and this new America that we were now living in. And it was really at this moment, if I trace it back, that I rededicated myself to being a bridge builder and an educator. And that is what I'm here to do as the director of research at the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding, before that at Gallup. My work and my life's mission is as an educator and a bridge builder. Today's main discussion is what are some of the obstacles to realizing some of the things that Mustafa talked about in terms of the American Muslim context being a space, an intellectual space for these important discussions. I want to talk to you about Islamophobia as it exists today in the United States. And my thesis is that I don't want you to worry about Islamophobia because it impacts me. I want you to worry about Islamophobia because it impacts you. My thesis is that Islamophobia is a threat to every single American, not just the 1% who identify as Muslim. We're only 1%, by the way. And that is because it makes everyone less free and less safe. And so first I want to make the case that it exists, in case that that is not apparent. If you're not experiencing it every day, I understand. You, I get it. You may not realize what it is and how it manifests. The second thing is I want to make the case why it makes everyone less safe and less free, and then I will end with some recommendations for what we can do about it. So what are the manifestations, or how do I make the case that it exists? Well, first, you know, we just, very simple, is Pew just came out with a report about American perceptions of different religious communities. Which ones are the most warmly regarded? Which ones are the least warmly regarded? Well, spoiler alert, if you haven't read the report, Muslims are the least warmly regarded major religious group in America. The good news, and I was actually happy about this, is that the plurality just have no opinion, which is great. I'm like, let's go with that. Let's go with no opinion. But it is, the net is negative. They are the least warmly regarded of any faith community. And that is hardly surprising. And we at ISPU have been doing scientific surveys of American Muslims, American Jews, American Catholics, American Protestants, and non-affiliated Americans for the past seven years. And what we found year after year after year is that a majority of American Muslims, the most likely faith community in America, says that they have faced some frequency of what they believe to be discrimination for their faith. And it's roughly 60% year after year, doesn't matter if Obama's in the White House or Trump or Biden. It's just the stable numbers around roughly 60% have experienced or report experiencing some frequency of religious-based discrimination. The Jewish community, it's around 52%, and it has been rising. Muslims are 60, around 60% most likely to report that, but it's very stable across the board. Now, the manifestation of that discrimination is what makes Muslims unique and different from other minority faith communities in America. And that is that it is not only interpersonal, 
from a coworker or interacting, you know, with people at the grocery store. I think every Muslim has some story to tell you about some microaggression or some something being screamed out at them or whatever. But it's that it's institutional. That's what makes it different. Other religious minorities in America, their their experience of religious discrimination, according to the research, is much more interpersonal. Where Muslims are different is that we're also experiencing on the institutional level. Things like banking while Muslim. Your bank account gets closed or your business bank account gets closed or something gets flagged. Twice as likely to experience issues while banking, while interacting with law enforcement, traveling while Muslim, applying for a job. So experiencing discrimination while applying for a job. And the list goes on. And even things like the judicial system around sentencing, and this is very well documented, four times the sentence for very similar plots, not things that have been executed, but ideologically motivated plots. So you have a Muslim defendant and a non-Muslim defendant both planning plots to do terrible things, very similar in nature, and the Muslim will get literally four times the sentence for very similar crimes. So that's how it impacts adults. It's also impacted, it doesn't discriminate by age though. There's also, unfortunately, children and bullying is a huge problem. So roughly half of Muslim families who have children in school report having their children having been bullied at some frequency in the past year for their faith. Again, the most likely faith community to be targeted for bullying. But what's really upsetting, I think, for me about the bullying question is the source of the bullying a third of the time is an adult, not another student, a teacher or an administrator. If that's kind of the manifestation of Islamophobia, what causes it? What is the cause of Islamophobia? And the easy answer, and the answer that I've always subscribe to is 9-11 is the cause of Islamophobia. Duh. But the data makes that much more complicated. And here's why. Pew has been tracking a sentiment among Americans for the past 22 years, even before 9-11. Something really strange about that is when it spikes and when it doesn't. There's two different questions that they've asked. I'll start with the second one. The second one is they've asked the American public whether or not they believe that Islam encourages violence more than other religions. So this question was asked first of the American public in November of 2001, right after the attacks of 9-11. And it's been asked throughout the past two decades. Now, if you think about it, this question about Islam encouraging violence more than other religions, one would expect, and understandably so, that it would be very high right after a horrific terrorist attack, and then become, as people sort of gain perspective, learn more, go down slowly over time. But in fact, the opposite is the case, where in 2001, November of 2001, a third of Republicans and a quarter of Democrats 
said that they believed Islam encourages violence more than other religions. And that is the, among Republicans, the lowest it'll ever be. Do you know what it is today? Or at least in 2017, that's the latest. It is double that, 67%, with no new terrorist attacks. And when does it spike? It went up in the run-up to the Iraq war, a war that yesterday was the 20th anniversary. And that was among Republicans and Democrats. And then it spikes among Republicans, specifically around election cycles. So the Boston bombing, another terrible tragedy and outrage, did not change that number among Republicans at all. No correlation with an actual terrorist attack, even 9-11. But the 2012 election cycle had that number go up by 12 points among Republicans. Now, what does that tell me as an analyst? Endorsing Islamophobic tropes is not the understandable response to bad Muslims doing bad things. It is not organic. Islamophobia is a tool of public manipulation. It follows political rhetoric. Right after 9-11, George W. Bush came out and said, this was not Islam. And I will forever be grateful for that. And people heard him. And so only a third of Republicans had endorsed this trope. But when it became necessary to drum up support for the Iraq war, that number actually started going up, not down. There was a spike in that perception around 2003, in 2003. It started to then go down and started spiking among just Republicans around election cycles. The sentiment is being manufactured for very specific political motives. The other thing to keep in mind, so if it's not sort of explained simply by 9-11, what does explain it? There's a number of things. The first thing that I encourage you to read more about is the Islamophobia industry. This is not a conspiracy theory. This is not something that is imagined. This is a documented phenomena. This is a documented group of individuals and institutions with access to millions of dollars whose entire mission it is to churn out fear of Islam and Muslims. I encourage you to read a report called Fear Inc. and Fear Inc. 2.0 about that documents this industry. The Center for American Progress issued both of those reports. There's also the issue of the media, and it's always very sensitive to talk to a group of journalists about the media, the media, but it's important to make these things real and to have an honest conversation about it. This is according to media content analysis. So in 2015, an organization called Media Tenor that does media content analysis of all kinds, mostly for corporate clients, did a study, and they've been doing this for a while, and they found that 90% of coverage of Islam and Muslims in U.S. news media was negative. And this was specifically TV news media. That same year, they looked at coverage of North Korea, and it was 70% negative. You have this global religious community, of which most are allies 
of the United States, more negatively portrayed than a country that was literally threatening to nuke California that year. And the global Muslim community is more negatively portrayed. Again, media tenor is out of Germany. <laughs> no, you know, no dog in this fight, just doing this study. And just in case we only blame TV news media, because that's what it was, another study out of 416 labs found that the New York Times portrayed Islam more negatively than cancer and cocaine over the past 25 years. It's not, when I say media, these things are documented. We can talk about Hollywood as another sort of aspect of that. But there are reasons why Islamophobia is what it is. What are the direct impacts of Islamophobia? Why should anyone care who isn't being directly, or so they think, is not being directly impacted? So some of the more obvious ones, as I've already kind of laid out, is it does impact Muslims. And as moral human beings, you know, we should care about our fellow human beings if they're being unjustly treated. So it makes us less safe. I'll start with the obvious. Muslims are less safe, right? If you look at things like what happened in New Zealand, this was four years ago on March 15th. A, I don't want to call him crazed. He was sane, fully sane human, went in and, and killed 50 people while they prayed. But those are such extreme events. They still happen. It just, it does make Muslims more, less safe and, and hate crimes were at their height in 2016, even more than after 9-11. But then there are these institutional manifestations, which I also explained. Now, how does it make other Americans less safe? Well, here's just one example. There was an actual recruiting video during the 2016 election cycle by Al-Shabaab, a terrorist organization, where they were quoting, they were bringing clips from the Republican primary debates in their recruiting video to recruit terrorists to kill us by using our anti-Muslim rhetoric to recruit. To think that anti-Muslim rhetoric is being tough when it comes to national security and keeping America safe by calling it what it is is insane, is completely untrue. It is actually the very fodder that, I mean, it's like these two sides are feeding off of each other. The actual deviants, I, I don't even call them extremists because being extremely Muslim means you're very charitable and very compassionate. You're a deviant, you've gone off the reservation. If the Quran is a recipe book and it says one teaspoon of sugar, an extremist puts a cup of sugar. A deviant person, which is what I think these people are, put a cup of cyanide. They've got it completely wrong, right? So if they're using anti-Muslim rhetoric in our political landscape to recruit people, to enrage people, to alienate people even further, then that's not keeping us safe. Islamophobia is, is very unsafe. But it also makes us less free. And here's a couple reasons why. So at ISPU, we've created something called the Islamophobia Index. And what that is is simply a measure of the level of endorsement the public has for 
specific anti-Muslim tropes. So there are five of them that other researchers have found correlate with acceptance of policies that are anti-democratic. And what you find is as this number goes up, a few things happen, and all else being equal, so this is like a linear regression, when people endorse these five tropes, they're also more likely to do a few things. One is endorse anti-Semitism and anti-Black racism, endorse anti-democratic policies like suspending checks and balances and freedom of the press in the wake of a terrorist attack, so it's bad for democracy, and endorse or sympathize or sometimes think is okay political violence. So Islamophobia is correlated with anti-democratic views, racism and anti-Semitism, as well as political violence or endorsement or sympathy with political violence. There's never been an America without Islam. There's never been an America without Islam. There were Muslims who were fighting the Revolutionary War. This is a real thing. So to position or to frame Islam or Muslims as a foreign religion, which is everything we heard about yesterday when it comes to white Christian nationalism, is inaccurate. It's an actual historical inaccuracy. Islam is as American as any other faith in our country. And so this idea, Islam hates us. No, Islam doesn't hate us, Islam is us. And so a real questioning of the otherization of Muslims and Islam. Faith Angle brings together leading clerics, scholars, and journalists. The full conversation between Mustafa, Dahlia, and 19 journalists who gathered in Miami is available in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Thank you.